Well, as you find your seats, brethren, find in your Bibles, Revelation 12. Revelation 12. Now, you know that chapters 12 to 14 form the fourth of seven cycles that describe the time frame between Jesus' first and second comings. So last week at the end of verse or at the end of chapter 11 we saw Jesus second coming. And uh, that's the third time we saw Jesus second coming. And now we're going to see in the beginning of verse 12 his first coming. And then at the end of 14 his second coming again. Because the book of Revelation Revelation as the Bible is in general is repetitious. But chapter 12 is probably one of my all-time favorite chapters of the whole book of Revelation. So what we're going to do is read through it, and then we're going to back up and focus our attention upon a woman, a male child, and a dragon. You're going to see children, predominantly three main figures in this chapter. There's a woman, a male child, and a dragon. Notice Revelation 12.1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head, on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, 
And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, brethren, obviously there are some things in this passage that may not be as clear, but I think it's rather clear who the woman is, who the male child is, and who the dragon is. In fact, we're told expressly who the dragon is. And there can only be one who's the male child, and the woman we're going to see is rather evidently the church. So you have the church, the male child is Jesus, and the dragon is Satan. There's the chapter. And if you keep that in mind, I think a lot of things will come into place. All right, so notice, first of all, a woman, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, as I've said already, this is, I think, rather obviously a description, a beautiful description of the church, and in particular, the Old Testament church just prior to Jesus' coming. She's described as regal and glorious. Listen to what Hendrickson said. She's clothed with the sun, for she's glorious and exalted. She has the moon under her feet, for she exercises dominion. She has on her head a wreath of 12 stars, for she's victorious. She was pregnant, for it was her task to bring forth the Christ as concerning the flesh. Now it's true, brethren, that Mary herself actually gave birth to Christ. We understand that. In fact, Rome, of course, would make much and does make much out of this chapter and interprets the woman here to be Mary, but that's just a flat lie. I can put it as plainly as that, brethren, because we're expressly told throughout the chapter that this woman is persecuted and that this woman has offspring it's obvious that the woman is the church collective and her individual offspring mentioned in verse 12 are individual christians you know brethren that the bible old and new testaments often speak of the church as a woman and often speaks of the church as a mother in fact if you remember in the book of galatians paul refers to the church as the mother of us all well, she's also the mother of the Lord Jesus as concerning the flesh. That is, he came from man, and the church is made up of men. So I think it's just a beautiful, simple way to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully human, right? We know that from the very beginning of the Bible, the very first promise of the Bible, in fact, in Genesis 3.15, we learned that the Messiah would come from a woman, and then we find out further that he's going to come from a Hebrew. And then we find out further information all the way to the New Testament. And while he's literally born of Mary, the Bible figuratively speaks of his coming forth from the church. And that's true, strictly speaking, with regards to his humanity. So while it may not be so clear at first, when we read through the whole chapter, we find that this woman is the church, persecuted, hated, maligned, and sought after by the dragon or by Satan himself. Again, in order to interpret a less clear passage, just read a little further and you'll probably get further light. All right, so we find a woman, and it's the church. Secondly, we find a male child. Verse 5, she bore a male child 
who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Here we find that John reduces down all of Jesus' earthly ministry, both his humiliation and his exaltation, in verse 5. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. Brethren, that's obviously... I'm sorry if I keep using that word obviously and evidently, but it is rather clear, I think. This is obviously a reference to Jesus' ascension and session at the right hand of the Father. Now, where do you find his humiliation? Well, it's implied. If he was raised from the dead and he ascended back to the right hand of the Father to sit upon David's throne, then in reward to his suffering, then evidently he suffered. And we're going to find that his blood is shed, was shed, and it's the means whereby we overcome the evil one, verse 11. We'll see that in a moment. So this male child is none other than the Messiah, Christ. And in particular, we find in verse 5, his resurrection slash ascension. That's what it means when it says, her child was caught up to God and his throne. That's ascension and session, right? That's the old word for him sitting on a throne. You find that in verse 5. Now again, we find this foretold back in Genesis 3.15. Think of that text again with me. I will put enmity between you. He's talking to the serpent, right? He's talking to the serpent, that dragon. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, that last seed there when it says and her seed is capitalized by the New King James and rightly so because it's a reference to the Messiah. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there's coming one who's going to be born of a woman and he's going to, through suffering, defeat the serpent. And that's important to keep in mind because while this passage admittedly doesn't speak much of his suffering, it does speak of his defeat of the serpent. And brethren, Jesus defeats the serpent in the midst, let me put it this way, in the midst of defeating the serpent, his heel is bruised. And that's a reference to the cross. So he crushes the head of the serpent through suffering, right? That's what it means. And that's important to keep in mind because we're going to find that the serpent is defeated in this passage. And he's defeated in this passage through Jesus' work. All right? So we find a woman and a male child. But you know, a large part of the passage is given over to the dragon and especially the dragon's hatred of the woman. And so that's what I want to come to now in the third point, uh, verse 3, a dragon. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now, who is this fiery red dragon? Well, we only have to go down to verse 9 and find that it's the devil or Satan, right? Just keep reading a little further and you'll get further or additional revelation. So this fiery red dragon is described 
in terms borrowed from the Old Testament, with imagery borrowed from the Old Testament. Okay. Egypt is described as a dragon, as a serpent, a beast from the water that's destroyed. Um, several places in Daniel 7, for example, you have Rome, that fourth beast, described similarly as this serpent is. And so, in other words, what we find here is a description of Satan, but Satan, as he controls and governs the wicked kings of this world. Right? That's the point here. That's why it says in verse 5, or uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 3, that he has seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. He has multiple kingdoms. That's the point. And much power given to him. He's the God of this world. And he governs all the kings of this earth. And we're going to find out that he incites them to, uh, to hate and to persecute the woman or the church. Okay, so we find, first of all, a woman, secondly, a male child, and thirdly, a dragon. Now, what I want to do here is to suggest three things about the dragon as it has bearing upon the male child and the woman. Three things about the dragon. First of all, notice in verse 4, his hatred of the male child. His hatred of the male child. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as was born. Okay. Now, the latter part of that text is obviously a reference to Herod and others, right? But the first part of the text is debated as to its meaning. Traditionally, most Christians, and I think rightly so, see in the first part of the verse, in the first part of verse 4, in, in, in the serpent's tail, drawing a third of the stars of heaven and throwing them to the earth, a reference to his fall at creation. Now, um, the only problem with that is it then makes the verse to say, to speak about two different events. Because the first part of verse 4 is speaking about his fall at creation, which I think it does. And then the second part, his hatred for the Messiah and him stirring up King Herod and others to kill Jesus in his infancy. And uh, you say, but could that be? Uh, and my answer would be, yes, it could be. That the first part refers to his fall at creation. And the reason I say that is because we're going to see from verse 7 and following, it's going to describe his fall at the beginning of the new creation. Okay, so you guys know what I mean when I say new creation, right? Redemption. When Jesus comes and he secures our salvation, he goes back to heaven, we're going to see that him, his death and his subsequent exaltation results in Satan being cast out of heaven. Okay, we read about that, and I'm going to come back and show you that that's all tied to Jesus' work, his, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. So, so we find then, if what I'm suggesting is true about the first part of verse 4, Satan's fall 
both with regards to the first and second creations. And brethren, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you think about it like that. Satan, in that sense, fell twice, right? We know that he is a created being, and at some point, early on in the creation account, he rebelled, and he took with him a number of the angels, and he became Satan, or the devil, or the serpent, or the dragon, and they became demons or devils. And uh, while we don't know exactly at what point in the creation account that happened, it happened early on. And here, I think, very possibly, you have an allusion to it. He was an exalted being. He was a creature. He was an angel. And he rebelled. And he took with him a third of the stars, a third of the angels. And so we find then that probably John, in the first part of verse 4, is going back to creation the first. Because in verse 7 and following, he's going to talk about Satan's fall in regards to creation the second. Okay? Now, let's go to the last, um, the last part of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, you remember that uh, Satan stirred up King Herod to kill all of the male children from two years old and younger. We find that back in Matthew 2.16. So I think this is the direct reference, right? This is the direct reference. But I think it's best to not limit it to that event, but to say, to stretch it to include all of Satan's activities to destroy Jesus, the male child, throughout the totality of his earthly ministry. Okay, so remember he tried to destroy him at the beginning there. I mentioned that with King Herod. And then you can find him again seeking to tempt Jesus at the beginning of his um, ministry. And then you find him all throughout, remember, working in regards to Judas, thinking that if he could stir up the hatred and the jealousy of the Pharisees, they would kill him and all of that. All the while, not realizing that the, the very things he was doing in terms of stirring up Judas and, and, the, and, 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 and the envy of the Pharisees and the Jews was all in fulfillment to God's purpose and in fact would be the very means whereby he would be defeated. So while it's obviously the, la the last half of verse 4 is talking about King Herod in that, in that particular event, I think it's best to see that's just put as a part of the whole of all of his hatred and his attempt to devour Jesus throughout those 30 plus years of earthly ministry. His hatred for the male child. Now it's important to keep in mind that because we're going to see he can, he, he's, he's unable to devour the male child because we're told in verse 5 that he went back to heaven. And, and Satan can no longer now in any way attempt to devour him. So what does he do instead? He seeks to devour his people who are left on the earth. So right now we learn here, don't we, that the hatred that Satan has for us is predominantly the result of his hatred for Jesus. Okay, right? Okay, that brings us secondly to the kind of the main point. His defeat by the male child. That is, Satan's defeat by the male child. Uh, now, 
verses 7 to 10 describe Satan's defeat through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So don't get caught up on the whole conflict that's taking place in Michael and heaven. I mean, that's, that's where we want to go. But if you just stand back and look at the bigger picture, it's most evident, obvious, clear, what's happening. And especially when we compare texts like this with what? Other clearer texts in the New Testament. Now, if we looked at verses 9 and 10, for example we would find that that Satan's defeat is described how? As being cast out and cast down, right? Okay, so just keep those, those terms in mind. Satan is cast out and cast down from a previously held position of authority, okay? And, and, and I can suggest that because of hints given to us in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, Before he was cast out, before he was cast down, he deceived the whole world. Right? And then in verse 10, as the result of him being cast out or cast down, now salvation, verse 10, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come. Okay. So whatever it means that that Satan is cast out and cast down, it results in these two things. His grip on the nations is loosened and salvation and salvation extends to the four corners of the world. Now, when did all that happen? It happened in and through the cross when Jesus went back to heaven. Jesus threw his cross. Just go back, brethren. It's, just go back to Genesis 3, 15. It was told us way back there that the means through which Jesus would, the Messiah, would defeat Satan was the cross. Think of it. He would crush his head. Crushing his head is one and the same with casting out and casting down. By the way, you have a little bit different imagery, don't you, in Revelation 20, speaking about the exact same event when Satan is described as being what? Bound. And here's the thing. When you go to Genesis 20 and find that Satan's bound through the cross, what is the result of his binding? That he can what? Deceive the nations no more. See, people always say, how can Satan be bound? Or let's put it this way. How can Satan be cast out? Because that's just another way of saying the same thing in in verses 9 and 10 in relation to Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet, brethren, notice it, all the way, I mean, verse 13 down, you find him still very active. Okay, so, so when it says that he's bound or cast out, let's just stick with the, the cast out language of this text. When it says that he's cast out through Jesus' historical work, it doesn't mean that he ceases to exist. It doesn't mean that he ceases to hate the church, nor does it mean that he ceases to be uh, a lion uh, who seeks to devour his prey. Because that's exactly what he's trying to do. Verse 13, he's... He's now focused upon the woman 
And he's unable to, because he's unable to kill the male child, he's after the woman. And he, and he can't kill the woman. And so now he's after individual Christians. Verse 17. So whatever is going on here, brethren, about this, 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 there, there's this undeniable fact. Satan is cast out. Verse 9 and 10. And yet he's very active on the earth. In fact, this text actually says he's really active on the earth because he's cast out. Let me put it like this. He's really active on the earth because he's bound. It just means that being cast out or bound means he's limited with regards to certain activities. Prior to the cross, salvation didn't go to the four corners of the world. And the reason why is because Satan had the four corners of the world, the nations, deceived. And now, through the crosswork of Jesus and his subsequent exaltation, he's purchased a redemption. Or let me just put it this way. He's purchased a people scattered throughout those nations. And now he's going to go get them. When did Jesus send out his people to the four corners of the world? It wasn't until after he went back to heaven and sent the Holy Ghost. And he suffered or he allowed the nations... He, he allowed the nations up until that point to be deceived by the devil. But something radically happened in Jesus' historical work that limited the ability of Satan to deceive the nations. And now salvation is going into the four corners of the world because Satan is cast out. Now let me show you that from... Well, if we had the time, I could show you the 15 texts I would really love to show you. But we're just going to have to limit ourselves to one. And that's John 12. And the reason why I want you to turn to John 12 is because you find identical language. Okay, so here it is. How do you, How do you interpret less clear texts? With clearer texts that say the same thing. Brethren, that's, that's a very important hermeneutical principle. Look at chapter 12, John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, let me ask you this. When Jesus is here talking about judgment, and he's, see, there's a judgment coming upon the ruler of this world, and then he uses the same exact language. He's going to be cast out. He's not talking about something that's going to happen way down the line at the end of at the consummation he's listen to what he says now i'm i'm about ready to go to the cross and when i go to the cross you're going to know that i'm going to crush the head of the serpent when does the bible promise jesus will crush the head of the serpent in the cross it doesn't mean that he ceases to exist it just means that his his power is limited in certain ways He's bound at the cross. His power is limited in ways. He's cast out at the cross. In fact, notice what happens as a result of him being cast out. Verse 31 says he'll be cast out. Now watch 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth. Do you know what it means when he says when I'm lifted up from the earth? He doesn't mean as Calvin wrongly understood it to mean to being preached. He means lifted up on a cross. That's what he means. Jesus is talking about a time when he'll be lifted up on a cross. And through that work, the devil will be cast out. 
And notice the result of the casting out. I will draw all peoples to myself. That is the nations, brother. Jesus is foretelling a time when he will take the gospel through his church to the nations. Why? Because the one who had hitherto, prior to that, deceived the whole world, all the nations, will be cast out. And he will no longer, he will no longer have the same grip upon the nations as he once did. Brother, I, I trust it's rather clear, if not exceedingly so, that this verse John 12, 30, 31, 32 is saying the same thing, isn't it? Uh, as our text in Revelation 12. Clear text interpret less clear text. All right? So we find that Satan is defeated at the cross and subsequent exaltation of Jesus, and he's cast out. But that doesn't mean he ceases to exist, does it? Because no sooner is he cast down, to the earth, verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And yet, go on, he goes on to say, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having been cast out through Jesus' historical work, having been cast out of heaven. Notice, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. And so now, because he can no longer get the male child, he can no longer destroy the woman in total because she's what? She's multiplied into the nations. Rather than the first, when he talks about he's going after her right here, he's going after the, after the woman, it's when the, when the church was what? But just a little band of, of, of Jews in Jerusalem. And he tried to snuff it out, but he couldn't. Why? Well, we're going to find out why in a minute because Jesus promised that he would preserve them. But that was his opportune time, wasn't it? When the church was but just a, a little thing. When the church was an infant, if you will. But now what's happened? Well, through Jesus' cross work, Satan's been cast out. And the gospel has gone to the four corners of the world. And now he goes after the individual offspring of that woman. All right? So we find in this chapter... That Satan provides uh, three ways. Did I already say? We saw his hatred for the male child, his defeat by the male child. Yeah, thirdly, we're on his wrath against the woman. I don't know if I gave you that heading or not. Yeah, his wrath against the woman. Okay, so we read in verse 13 that the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And so as I've said, by woman is meant the church as a whole, and by her offspring, the remnant, is meant individual Christians. All right. So if we were to consult the whole chapter, we would find at least three ways in which Satan makes war with God's people. Um, and, and we're just not going to have time to look at this in, in detail, but very quickly. Uh, I, I suggest to you that you could summarize uh, the tactics of Satan as found in this chapter into three words. Accusation, verse 10. Persecution, verse 13. And deception, verse 15. Let me just go through them rather quickly. Accusation, verse 10. This describes what Satan did before the work of Christ. 
in particularly in accusing the Old Testament saints. Notice how it's dis- he's described there. For the accuser, the, the end of 10, verse 10, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So this means prior to him being cast down, prior to the cross and the ascension of Jesus, he accused the brethren. That means the Old Testament saints. Why? Because they went to heaven. Sinners, they were by nature. David went to heaven. Solomon went to heaven. Moses went to heaven. Abraham went to heaven. And Satan's accusing them. Because look, how is it that you can let that sinner say he's saved by grace, but that, that, that sinner like David and, and Solomon and Moses and Abraham and all the rest, how is it that you can let these sinners into heaven? And so he's accusing them, but he, he's unable to accuse them at a certain point in history when Jesus comes to heaven with his blood to pour it out on the heavenly mercy seat. It's as if God is saying, okay, you've been accusing my people now for these so many thousands of years. And that's why he made Jesus' cross and his death a public display, didn't he, brethren? He publicized Jesus' death so that Satan could no longer accuse the brethren because now there's been made an atonement for their sins. That's that's the point here in verse 10. Satan used to accuse the brethren, but he's no longer able to accuse the brethren because there's bloodshed. Now, does that mean that he no longer, that does that, let me put it this way, that doesn't mean that he no longer attempts to accuse us. But as we're going to see here in a moment, his accusations can no longer stick because of what Jesus has done. But that's, we learn from verse 10 that what he did and what he still does in part is accuse. So accusation. Secondly, persecution, verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. As I've said, having sought to devour Christ, then the woman, Satan now turns his hatred toward individual saints. And how does he do this? But by inciting the rulers of this wicked age to hate and to mistreat God's people. Persecution. Who's at the very roots of persecution, brethren? You know, the church isn't being persecuted for mostly by the Democrats or uh, the liberals or this or that. They're just, brethren, they're just pawns. They're just peewees. They're nothing in comparison to the father of it all. The, The root of it all is Satan himself. Satan is the one, brethren. This is our great enemy. It's not these people or those people. Remember, we fight not against flesh and blood. Satan and Satan alone is our ultimate foe. And he seeks to make war with God's people through accusation, through persecution, and then thirdly, through deception. 
Now we find this back in the other verse. Remember, is it verse 9? He deceives the whole world. That's obviously one of his strategies, right? Deception. But you really find it even more so in verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, basically seeking to what? To drown her, right? That's what it says. Now, um, throughout the book of Revelation, almost always, at least we can say ordinarily, if not almost always, when something is said to come out of the mouth, it's a reference to words, right? And so when this water is said to come out of the mouth of the dragon, it's, it's probably teaching us that it's a reference to deception, false doctrine, and lies. Listen to the words of Dennis Johnson. He believes that, and I think he's right. He said, in Revelation, what proceeds from the mouth symbolizes words and their power. Here, the floodwaters from the dragon's mouth symbolizes deceptive teaching that would, if believed, drown the church's faith, destroying its life. And so one obvious way, brother, we know that, don't we? When we read through the New Testament letters, that there's false teachers. And don't those New Testament teachers, again, trace those false teachers and the false teaching of those false teachers where? To Satan, right? That's what it says. Satan is the father of lies, and all false teaching originates ultimately from Satan himself. And that's why it says that the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman. God providentially intervenes and preserves and keeps her from believing the lies so as to be damned. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. It's just a figurative way to say that God preserves his people and doesn't suffer them, doesn't allow them to believe heresy. Major errors that will lead you into hell. Right? This is what we learn from John 2, don't we? They wouldn't, if they were of us, John said, they never would have left us. And the reason why you never left us is because you have the anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. In other words, God opens up the earth and swallows up the flood of lies that Satan spews out of his mouth in an attempt to drown you. All right, so in closing, I want to suggest one of the many lessons and then uh, kind of expand upon it. So let me just give you one major lesson learned from this chapter. Obviously, the the, the lessons learned from this chapter are many. They're, They're multiple, wonderful lessons to be learned from this chapter. But let me kind of summarize many of them in this statement. While Satan and this world hate Christ and his people, that is the male child, the woman and her offspring, God's church will endure. Brother, keep in mind again the whole point. These are letters written to the church that's in the midst of all of this floodwater, all of this accusation and persecution. And the, the point that John is making, the point that Jesus is making through John, is that though Satan and this world hate you, 
God's people will endure. Now, in closing, let me suggest three reasons why. First, the woman is preserved. Verse 6. And verse 14. Verse 6 speaks of a, 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 a place prepared by God. And verse 14 speaks of her place. This means God has prepared a place within the wilderness of this world to protect his people, at the end of verse 14, from the presence of the serpent. Now what does it mean to be preserved from the presence of the serpent? It doesn't mean that they're kept from the accusations of the enemy, the persecution of the enemy, or the lies of the enemy. But it does mean that they're preserved from those, kept from those, so as to receive a death blow. That's what it means. It's the same thing that we've been seeing. Remember, they're numbered, they're counted, they have his, his seal on their forehead. All of those different, those are different ways of saying that God knows his people, he preserves his people. Again, repetition, repetition, repetition. Same things being taught in different ways. God keeps them safe while in the midst of this wilderness, this wilderness, this world. Brethren, it's obvious, isn't it, that Israel's exodus from Egypt and flight into the wilderness is in mind. Again, the, the, the book of Revelation constantly builds upon, borrows from Old Testament imagery. In fact, the exodus, we've been seeing the exodus and the plagues all throughout the book of Revelation. This is also, main, this is also suggested from verse 14. Two wings of a great eagle. It says that uh, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Well, remember, God said when he delivered his people from Egyptian bondage and brought them through the wilderness safely. Do you know what he said there in Exodus 19.4? I bore you on eagle's wings. It's, it's evident, brethren, again, that this New Testament book is building upon Old Testament imagery. And so the woman is preserved. That simply means that God keeps his people from receiving a death blow from the dragon. It doesn't mean he can't breathe on her. It doesn't even mean that he might scorch her in places and degrees, but he will never torture her so as to destroy her. That's the point. Surely we understand that he's not saying you'll never be tempted, accused, or, or, or persecuted, or any of these other things by Satan. Satan is chasing the woman through the whole chapter. But the point is she has a place in the midst of the wilderness where she's preserved. Secondly, the woman is nourished. And here it's necessary to point out... Uh, Further imagery, Old Testament imagery behind this passage. Brother, if we had the time, we could take a text like this, literally, and peel back the layers like an onion. And you're going to find all these Old Testament imagery stacked on top of one another. It's a proof that this book is divine. It's one of the many proofs that this is not a regular book, brother. Okay, so what is the, what is the imagery behind this? Well, the Exodus, right? And the wilderness, and, and, and them, okay, what happened when they were in the wilderness? They were what? They were nourished with what? Bread from heaven and water from the rock. Bread and water. 
and it says that they're fed. Where does it say that? Um, Um, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her. Okay? So you have the church being fed. And then you have the church being nourished in the other place. Verse 14. Verse 14 and verse 6 are saying the same things. You just find a little bit more information in verse 14, where she's nourished for a time and times and a half a time. So you have the same thing and the same duration, right? In uh, verse 6, it's, tw- it's uh, 1,260 days, right? 42 months or three and a half years. That's what's meant in verse 14, for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so you have it in days, elsewhere you have it in months, and then you have it in years. That's what's meant by time, times, and a half a time. And it all means three and a half years. So one obvious intentional imagery of the text is the exodus, the wilderness being nourished and fed by God in the wilderness, right? But there's another uh, imagery here that's, I think, most intentional and, and beautiful. Just think, and I brought it up, I think it was a few weeks ago. But if you think for a second, what incident in the Old Testament harmonizes or, or, or reminds you of what's happening here in Revelation 12? What, what incident in the Old Testament took place over a three and a half year time frame And it concerned God's people being preserved by their enemies and fed and nourished by God. Well, if you're thinking about Elijah, then you're thinking rightly. Because remember, Elijah, for the three and a half years when there wasn't any rain, he was chased by Ahab and and his wicked, uh, rebellious wife, Jezebel. And God kept him where? In the wilderness. And he fed him how? Miraculously. Remember? Was it the raven in different ways? That he brought bread and he brought water to his prophet. He preserved Elijah for 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times and a half a time, three and a half years. We know that if we compare the Old Testament with James. James is the one that actually specifies that it was three and a half years. But also at the exact same time that Elijah is being preserved from these wicked people, we could say the serpent, the red fiery dragon, at the same time that Elijah is being preserved in the wilderness for three and a half years, guess what else is happening? Obadiah, the prophet, has taken a hundred of the last prophets, the others being killed by uh, Jezebel, and he has hidden them where? In different places. Caves. And guess what he does as he's hidden them in 50s in two caves for the three and a half years? He nourishes them with bread and water. Let me read you the text. 1 Kings 18.4 For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. So in other words, it's just using the, the Old Testament imagery of Elijah. By the way, we saw Elijah not long ago, didn't we, back in, in, in another chapter, because he was one of the two uh, 
witnesses that were killed. All right, so the point being, God not only preserves us in the wilderness, but he nourishes us in the wilderness. Brother, we don't just barely get by, but he feeds us with bread from heaven and water from the rock. He nourishes his people through this wilderness. And then finally, the woman is victorious. Verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Okay, so I suggested three ways in this passage that the serpent makes war with the woman and her offspring. Do you remember what they were? Accusation, deception, and persecution. And it wasn't until I, after I came up with that, then I looked at verse 11, and I realized that verse 11 perfectly answers those three strategies. Notice accusation. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Brethren, only Christ's blood can remedy a guilty conscience. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. So when our enemy accuses us, he can no longer accuse us in the same way he accused the Old Testament saints. I understand that. But he still nevertheless seeks to accuse us. But brethren, how can he accuse us if we have the blood of the Lamb that's been shed for our sins? And so they overcame him, his accusations by the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, his deceptions by the word of their testimony. Now, I, I mentioned this not long ago. I can't remember where, some weeks ago or months ago, when we saw a similar phrase earlier in the book of Revelation. Usually this text is misunderstood to mean that we overcome our enemy by giving a testimony, okay? Like I did, I mentioned in my sermon, uh, uh, in Cuba. You have to, you have to testify, and, and somehow that would drive Satan away. Well, I mean, it, it's a good practice, certainly, to testify. But it's talking... When it says the, the word of their testimony, it's not so much talking about our word. It's talking about God's word and our testimony to its truth and power in our heart and soul. It's the same thing you find in verse 17. Uh, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's really not so much our testimony as it's God's testimony of Jesus in the word belief from the heart. Oh, brother, you have to believe it. For sure. In other words, what is it that keeps us from this ocean of lies that comes out of the mouth of the dragon? It's the word of God. And particularly his testimony about Jesus. Belief from the heart. And then persecution. And they did not love their lives to the death. That is, they loved him more than their own lives, brethren. And so they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of God, and they did not love their lives to the death. Now we're going to see, God willing, that chapters 13 and 14 are attachments to this. Because at present, we're not, we're still, where are we at the end of chapter 12? We're still in the wilderness, being preserved by God from our enemies. But Jesus has to come back and there has to be salvation and judgment. And that we will find, brethren, very graphically described in chapter 13 and 14. But that will wait, God willing, 
to next time. Let's stand and sing hymn 596.